This is the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. It will be covering a walk from the geographic centre of Australia to the centre of the nation's capital in Canberra to raise awareness of the mental health issues faced by our first responders. We ask a lot of the people in our police, emergency services and all frontline workers. That takes a big toll on them and their families, which is why this walk is happening. These are just everyday people that have to do extraordinary things. These people are just like my dad. Welcome to the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. Today's episode will be covering some really new territory for us. We'll be talking about some alternative therapies to the treatments that many of the people that are uh, tied up with a walk are participating in. And we'll also be talking about therapy dogs. It'll be an interesting episode. This episode today is with Daniel Jamison, a former 6RAR infantry soldier with the Australian Army. And a mate of mine that ended up, we, uh, we both ended up in the uh, same PTSD group and uh, that's where I first met Dan. So welcome, Dan. Oh, thanks for having me, mate. Appreciate oh, it. Really, uh, I've been looking forward to doing this one for a long time, actually, because... Um, it's it's going to be a little bit, um, like you said, off-piste compared to um, <laughs> all the rest of the uh, podcast that you've previously done. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Um, sh- should, hof- should hopefully... Um, have some information that would be um, relevant towards your, the, the people that, that need it or um, are considering absolutely um, the line of treatment that I've sort of gone down. Yeah, yeah, really looking forward to talking about that because it's something that people ask me about and, you know, uh, ultimately I've, I've not done that and I don't know that much about it but uh, particularly the, the therapy dog was yeah. a big yeah. eye-opener for me because it was exactly not what I thought it was about. And, and, it, uh, and, it, and it rarely is. Yeah. Um, most people think that um, when you get a therapy dog, they're ready to go straight out of the oven, yeah. and you don't have to do anything. You just they just follow you around and and um, yeah. comfort you when you when you need it, and and, <laughs> and that's it's absolutely just like taking your pet dog into the shopping center and you've got a you've yeah, got, yeah. A, got a coat on it, but it's un- nothing un- like un- it. Unfortunately, that is <laughs> no, not unfortunately. I'd say um, is definitely not the case, but there are. Pros and cons behind it for a reason, yeah. And I think that's to help you try and move forward, yeah, yeah. Um, in general, well, we need to start right back at the start. Um, yeah. And there's a bit of a backstory to your history that makes it a bit complicated for you to recall yeah. a lot of what I'm just about to ask you about. Absolutely. Um, which we'll talk about, I guess, in time. But where'd you grow up? I was born in Brisbane. A um, couple of years there and uh, you're going to have to excuse me because, like I said earlier, I'm going to have to refer to my notes because <laughs> my memory is um, either really bad or, or non-existent yeah. as far as this goes. Um, so 1978, after two years in Brisbane, we we moved to Darwin. Um, in Darwin, doing pr- uh, preschool and primary school up until 1985, and my father, my stepfather, um, who has been with us since I was about, or not quite two years old, um, was a geologist and soil tester and geotechnician. Oh yeah, I, okay. I guess yeah, I yeah. guess is yep. what that is. And um, he worked on the Stuart Highway, um, which is the main road up and down the Northern Territory. And um, 
you know, they work on 20 to 30 kilometre stretches at a time. And um, he started to get further and further away from Darwin, the jobs that he was getting. So, you know, when it when it got to the five, 600 kilometre away mark, we... That's we, a long we, way to work. <laughs> we decided to pick up the family and, and move down with him to uh, a place called Church's Hill. You can Google it or Google Maps it. It's in the middle of the Northern Territory. Um, we were there from 85 to 86. Um, and then we moved to another little town called Elliot in the middle of the Northern Territory. Uh, it's like a one one pub town with a caravan park, a north um, Indigenous community and a south one. And then um, a school and that was it pretty much. And um, we were there from 86 to 88 and then we picked up sticks and we did a huge sea change and we moved down to a 1,200-acre property 60 kilometres west of Warhope in New South Wales. We we called Ralph's Trail because it, it actually came off a trail called Ralph's Trail. Yeah, okay. And Ralph's Creek bordered our property, about two-thirds of our property. It was a freshwater creek, um, spring-fed, always flowing no matter how bad the, the droughts were. Wow. Waterfalls, swimming holes, all that sort of stuff. 1,200 acres. Good backyard. Oh, it was just... It's a bit of a contrast to the middle of the territory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was just amazing, you know. And um, So do I remember rightly, though, back when you were a kid in the territory that you ended up shifting over to the School of the Air? Yeah, we did. Yeah. yeah. Um, we did that briefly. Um, I would say it was probably, from what I've been told, less than a year's worth. Um, and the main reason for that was because there was an outbreak of scabies um, at the local school. Um, my older sister and I, from what I've been told, were the only white kids and she's a white, she's a very white-skinned with uh, red hair. Yeah, right. And um, I'm two years younger than she is and um, one classroom for years one to six. Yeah, you know, and, okay. Um, Join the dots. Yeah, yeah, it was a hard, hard time. Um, what was School of the Air like? I don't remember. Don't remember it at all. No, yeah. I don't. I don't know. I've, I've got, I've got no memory of it. I, I got told that we were on, we did School of the Air, but I've got no memory of it. Okay. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, it's, you know, I, I can't, it's I can't picture it in my mind. Yeah, right. Yeah, but yeah, so Ralph's Trail on the property. I went uh, year five and six. And then high school to year 10. And then I left home uh, in 92 when I was 16, I think it was. Yeah, 16 or 15, something like that. Finished year 10 anyway. And um, went out on my own and worked at a couple of different places, a bowling alley, um, Hungry Jacks. And then I joined the army um, eventually in 1995, May of 1995. So I was 18 um, I think I remembered you telling me when you were out at... At, at the group therapy? No, yeah, well, at I think I remembered group. you saying at one stage at the Ralph Strail property that yeah. it was pretty basic. Very basic, yeah. We we didn't have power. Um, we had a generator that was built out of an old diesel pump for a dairy. Um, it had a great big centrifugal um, wheels on the outside of it and um, you had to hand crank it over to get it started <laughs> and... Um, we only had the generator on from about, you know, dark at night um, until probably, you know, bedtime and then yeah, we'd, right. you'd go, go down there with a torch and, and shut it off. And, wow. you know, we had a long drop on the side of a steep hill that um, overlooked 
with no door that overlooked a valley, you know. <laughs> no uh, neighbours though, right? <laughs> no neighbours, no neighbours. Yeah, wow. Well, the neighbours were, you know, about five ridges away. So, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, there was no chance of being spotted, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. There was no embarrassment attached. No. And our, our fresh water we pumped up from the creek and um, in two stages, so a dual stage pumping up to the our tank and then that fed into a 44-gallon drum welded to uh, four legs and you'd lit a fire under the 44-gallon drum and that was how you got your hot water for a shower. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, it was a very basic existence. We had a kerosene fridge um, and, yeah. And this is in the just in the early 90s? Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. That's, a, that's not a normal childhood in that sense for many people, I don't think, you know, to try and fathom... Particularly these days, you know, look at what no. kids have got in their pockets these days. But yeah, that's um, even back in those days. Well, we was... didn't we didn't have a phone either. Yeah, wow, not even a landline um, out there. No, Nothing. we we eventually did, yeah. um, but not for a few years. We had to uh, continually petition Telstra to um, put in telephone poles and a line reaching our place from yeah. quite a distance away, and it, I think it cost mum and dad quite a lot of money as well. Yeah, right. To um, they had to chip in to to get that done. But for a long time, yeah, we had we had nothing wow. out there. So we and we built our house, which was basically a shed, yeah, glorified shed, yeah, yeah, um, ourselves um, with with block and tackle and all that sort of stuff. Wow, and, yeah. Do you remember any of that? Uh, bits and pieces of it, or bits and pieces of it. Um, the, the funny thing is the the one thing that sticks out in my mind is that in my mind, sorry, is that. Um, <laughs> Because we didn't have TV, we're out of reception. Um, we did have a TV and a VHS player, <laughs> but we could only watch the movies that we had or that once in a blue moon we would hire from the video shop yeah. to, to, to watch. Only the weekly weekly rental ones, not, right. the, not the overnighters. Not the overnighters, <laughs> no. And um, I don't think the kids these days would even understand what that means. <laughs> no. And, uh, yeah. and the... Because I had an older sister and a younger sister, um, my younger sister was is eight years younger than me, and she always, for some reason, uh, managed to get the TV. And I've seen probably about three hundred times. I've seen um, Mary Poppins <laughs> and the and, and the Sound of Music. Yeah, uh, right. may, maybe even more. I don't know. I thought you but, must um, have had a, uh, a very well worn out. Uh, copy of Platoon or something that took you to the army. No, yeah. no, no, no. The the reason I actually started to go towards getting in the army was um, there's a fella who got out of the special air service um, or SAS for about three years or so. He was a sergeant, and he got out and he started working with my mother. My mother worked at Timbertown, Warhope. Oh, yeah, the, right. The 1880s village. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she actually worked um, driving the Cobb and Co carriage um, with the wow. draft horses. And this guy, um, obviously I won't mention his name because he's actually back He's back in now um, working over there. Um, he was working the uh, the bullocks. He was driving the bullocks with a big bullock whip around the oval, <laughs> dragging the log, the log around the oval in front of the grandstand and the other people would watch him. Wow. Talk about the bullocks and all that sort of stuff, and um, we were good friends with them. And he had a garage full of 
of of things that old kit, old kit. Yeah. and um, he had a he had an old bait beater. Um, oh yeah, player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, the beater, the, the beater, v- the, the enemy of VHS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he had films of uh, Carter courses and like okay. the, the, the entrance, you know, courses to getting into the SAS and like old old movies of them and things yeah, like that. Right. And, you know, and I used to watch bits and pieces and look at all his gear and look at all these photos that he had and yeah. and just was amazed captured by you. everything yeah. and it just sort of captured my imagination, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, right. So. Wow. That's unreal. That's uh, – yeah. So what? So leaving to join the Army 95? Yeah, May not, 23rd of May 95. What, what's that process um, like for those that wouldn't wouldn't know it? Well, you go to your local recruiting office. Um, there was one in – Port Macquarie. So I went in and said that, you know, I'm, I want to join the army and they said, yep, no worries. And they set a, a date for you to come in and do your medical, your psychological evaluation and any other evaluations they can cover. And then um, once that's complete, they put you on a bus and you go down to the, we went down to the Hyde, Hyde Park Recruitment Centre in Sydney and they do more testing um, longer psychological tests, medical, eye tests, hearing tests. Um, yep. Get a baseline for, you know, how broken your body is at the start <laughs> as compared to how body how broken your body is going to be at the end. And <laughs> and then um, once all that's done, you you uh, you do the oath. Um, there, I, I there. can't I can't remember. Yeah, right. What the oath is, but um, they've got you from that point. And yeah. then you sign on the dotted line. Yeah, right. And then you, you've got your bags, <laughs> and you get on a bus, and it's a straight to Kapuka, um, which is a Wagga Wagga. And then from there, it was 13 weeks of training. A lot of it was in winter, so that was horrible. <laughs> um, winter in Wagga. Yeah. And then from there, I went to Singleton as a what what you call an IET, which is initial employment training, and. Um, you know, at Kapuka with your psych tests, um, you don't find out whether or not you're going to be infantry, a cook, um, an engineer, armoured or whatever until almost the last week of training. Right. So you, you're sort of stuck in limbo. You don't really know what you're going to be doing. Yeah. And I think it mostly it comes down to the needs of the Defence Force at, okay. the t- at the time. You know, if they're short, a lot of infantry soldiers, they're going to... You know, most of, the guy, most, of, most of the guys will go to infantry right. unless you're actually a real standout as far as your intelligence goes and they might want you to go to psych or intelligence or okay, yeah, or, right. or some other branch. Um, but almost out, my whole platoon went to infantry. Yeah. Um, so Is that where you wanted to go or did you have something else in mind after all those beta videos? I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah, okay. Um, I was sort of rolling with it. I figured that when they said that I was going to infantry, that it, having watched all those videos and being sort of um, inspired to go along those lines, that it was not a bad thing, and I wasn't, I wasn't, um, I wasn't, I wasn't phased by the decision. It was like, yeah, cool. It wasn't I'm like gonna, you got dudded in the process. Nah, yeah, no, okay. no. I was okay. like, yeah, cool. Infantry's cool. Yeah. And um, I actually had a pretty hard time at the school of infantry. I had to repeat hardcore, which is the, the. Um, the final phase at the end where you do like a long pack march oh, followed yeah, right. by obstacle course, followed by, 
you know, a bunch of testing and yada, yada, yada. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's – so at the end you do a, a final exercise and then you, you walk from your final exercise to do, to do hardcore, which is your final testing thing. And, and um, yeah, I was basically at the back of the pack um, at that stage. I wasn't fit enough. Um, yeah, right. Or mentally strong enough, I don't know. But How old were you then? Uh, 18. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, which was – which is a shameful thing in those days, you know. You, when you're at the back of the pack and <laughs> you, you know, your head's down and you're, you're feeling pretty rotten. And um, I had to repeat hardcore. Um, luckily, I only had to wait two weeks to do that, and um, I passed it and got sent to the second battalion up in Townsville. Right. Once again, a bit of a not the best soldier in the world. Um, just forgetful. <laughs> um, typical 18 year old typical right? well <laughs> not really but yeah I you know I, I, I try to impress people um, by saying things that that weren't exactly um, 100% true and got myself into trouble quite a lot in yeah. that respect and back then um, dead ground counselling was what we called it what was it called? Was, uh, well you basically get taken out. You, you can, you, <laughs> I think you, I can picture you, what it is. I just you, didn't you get, name. You get, you get taken in dead ground when you're an infantry. Oh, dead ground, dead right, ground right. when you're an infantry soldier is any ground that you can't see. Yeah, is described as dead ground. So if you're looking at a field and there's a creek in the middle of that field and you can't see what's in the, the creek, that's considered dead, dead ground. ground. Yep. So dead ground counselling, as you can imagine, is going into a spot where people yeah. can't see you, and being and, and, counselled <laughs> quite heavily um, physically. Um, so that was sort of the norm back then, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, which to be honest, I don't regret because it snapped me out of, um, yeah, right. the, the lull that I was in and, and made me realize the importance of the role that the infantry soldier has. Um, you know, I, I don't encourage bullying in any way, shape or form, but, um, I'm pretty sure I earned it yeah, <laughs> whenever, right. I, whenever I got cancelled. <laughs> um, well, at least you're honest with yourself, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, eventually I ended up uh, going to Perth for a couple of years um, uh, because the Army had a great idea or the Defence Force had a great idea that every reserve battalion should have a full-time company with them. Uh, right. or, or, or a platoon, a full-time platoon, sorry, with, with the reserve, reserve battalion right. to help um, uplift the skill level yep. of, of the reserve battalions. And um, so I spent two years in Perth and um, and then Timor kicked off in 99. Right. And I believe three RER were the first to go to East Timor. Okay. Um, and then after them... The rotation, I believe, was 5-7 RAR, which is a mechanised battalion, so the old armoured personnel carriers. Oh, yeah, right. And then we uh, – I, I went to 6 RAR uh, in Brisbane and then in 2000, um, sort of mid-2000, we um, re- replaced 5-7 okay. uh, over in East Timor. Yeah, right. Because um, so. it was a pretty well peacetime defence force up until that point, wasn't it? For That's long, right. For a long time. That's yeah. right, yeah. I, um, I had a, quite a few friends over the years that were in the military in those days and got out of it because they just 
I think they just got yeah. bored, you know. They trained and trained and trained right. for this thing that yeah. was never happening and then this happened. Yeah, yeah. And, and even though Rwanda and Somalia happened, there was only a select yeah, few. Wasn't much, it wasn't much commitment to those. No, there was only a select few platoons from each, um, I think one or two IR that went to Somalia or um, right. or Rwanda and, yeah, not, not many of them... Um, not not many others had the chance to go over. There wasn't many rotations or anything. Right. It, it ended yeah. ended quite quickly. Um, so yeah, there's a big lull from almost basically Vietnam through to mm. East Timor as far as operational deployments go. Yeah, right. Um, not discrediting the guys that went to Rwanda or yeah, yeah, or Somalia because that from yeah, from what horrendous. I've heard was pretty yeah. pretty horrendous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially the. The genocide that was happening in yeah. Rwanda and the and the warlords that were trying to control Somalia. So yeah, yeah, that yeah, sounded horrible. Mm. What was it like getting shipped overseas with a deployment? Um, I was trying to. Uh, it was a long. There was a long lead up period. So there was a good six month chunk of training right. um, that was designed specifically for our role over there. So we, you know, we. We did a lot of um, scenario-based training that helped us prepare based on intelligence and things that 3RER and 5-7 were already doing whilst they were over there. You know, we spent a lot of time outfield preparing. Uh, we, we even did um, some uh, uh, Tetum lessons, which is the, the native language over there. It's, right. kind of, it's, it's a mixture of Indonesian and Portuguese okay. apparently, but... Uh, different villages speak different variations, and yeah, yeah it can be quite. It's always going to be hard. Yeah, yeah. It can be quite hard. But you know, the, the the thing about Australian soldiers that I I think um, we get a bad rap about because we're kind of almost lumped into the same category as um, American soldiers. But the thing about Australian soldiers is that we understand that we're not. We're in, we understand that we're in somebody else's country. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. we understand that regardless of our personal intentions to behave as respectfully as we can there's a political motivation behind it yeah and that all that we can do is is be as good as we can and be as moral as we can yeah and behave accordingly, accordingly. yeah um and and i guess and i've always said this to people and you know you hear stories about ex-diggers from vietnam vietnam vets going back over to vietnam and having having a drink or two with Viet Cong soldiers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and there's that respect because you know, we didn't we didn't perform any atrocities and we didn't do any yeah. of that sort of horrible stuff while we were over there. There was always that respect between the two sides. Yeah. And we treated our, our prisoners of war humanely and and um and I, I believe the vice versa happened the other right. way around as well. Yeah, I think there's a few accounts of that, isn't there, in the history books of Australian soldiers and and uh, yeah. you know those uh, those yeah. enemy enemy ally sort of interactions at different yeah, and, times. And, and I know I know it sounds like I'm bagging out the the U.S. Army, but it's it's really not their fault, and in a lot of ways because the the magnitude of their forces and the the amount of information that can come down or be disseminated to the common soldier is so much less right. than than what can be sort of um, passed on to our lowest common denominator, the so or not as far as 
I'm sort of digging a grave here, but <laughs> but our, our our private soldier, I guess, is is I feel as though because of the amount of people that are in our forces is probably slightly more well informed, right, than than the a soldier in the American or a Marine or whatever yeah. it may be uh, culturally as well um, yeah. about the country you're going into. I think they've learned a lot from their experiences of the past. Yeah, so okay. they've probably gotten a, a lot better yeah. in that regard. Um, once again, that's only speculation. I've, I've been out of the Army since technically 2008. Um, so I, I, yeah. really, I really don't know. Yeah, it is interesting though, isn't it? There's sort of, yeah, there's certainly a different perception of behaviour, I think. Uh, yeah. That's pretty well, pretty well known and accepted. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, tell me the uh, the date September eleven has a lot of meaning for most people, but for you it's a bit different. Yeah, um, and it was a year before the actual falling of the twin towers over in America. Um, so two thousand, the year was two thousand, not two thousand one. Uh, September eleven, it was the the end of our fifth month. Of being there, so we only had one month to go, and it was our last rotation to our new forward operating base. So every month we would, each platoon in the battalion would would rotate to a new forward operating base to stay fresh, to move to a new location, to you know, basically try and keep you on your toes. Yeah, right. A, a little bit, yeah. I suppose. And we were um, in a convoy traveling from a little place called Moliana, which is on the border of East and West Timor, uh, back to Balibo, um, which is a famous town as far as, I don't know if anyone remembers the Balibo 7 reporters that got killed. Yeah. Uh, when Indonesia first invaded East Timor back in 70, I'm going to say 74 ago, or something like that or yeah. 78 maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It was in the 70s when they when they invaded um East Timor, and seven of the Australian reporters that were there covering it um, were killed yeah. in Balibo. So um, anyway, we were driving back. I was in the second vehicle. Um, the guy that usually stands in the the gun cupola um, of the Land Rover. So it's a, it's a basic Land Rover reinforced with a swivelling gun turret basically on top with a machine gun that you stand behind to give you that height advantage should you be contacted, all that sort of stuff. And the guy that was supposed to be there was on leave on on uh, his break back to Australia. You get oh, right. 10 days or whatever um, back back in Australia. Yeah. So, you know, I, I had to be up there. So it was just me and the driver basically. And um, being... It's just a weird circumstantial thing, but usually at night time, because it was night, um, you'd put your night vision goggles on and we didn't have the adapters where you can attach the night vision goggles to your helmet. So we had the like a netting set up and then like this thing that rests across your forehead that supports the, the weight of the night vision goggles and and then you'd that's how you'd see, you yeah. know, see at night time. And... Um, because we were the second vehicle and it was a dusty, dry evening, what I opted to do was take my night vision goggles off, 
put my helmet on, my Kevlar helmet on, which was, uh, which my goggles were adjusted to. Yeah, okay. Do up my Kevlar helmet, put my goggles on and put, wrap like a, they call it a shemag, um around camo my, like stuff. a camo, like a, almost like a, like a large tea towel kind of yeah. arrangement, but soft um, around your face to stop the dust, you know, breathing in dust while you're, while you're driving. And um, lucky I did that, otherwise I'd be dead because halfway, apparently halfway between Moliana and Balibo, which is only about, I'm going to say about 15 kilometres, 20 kilometres away. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I can't remember the distance. Um, my driver lost control and rolled the vehicle um, down an embankment and then as it rolled, the, the, the whole weight of the vehicle compressed under my helmet and crushed my skull like an eggshell. And that caused a lot of bleeding, uh, specifically in the front right-hand lobe of my brain. And, um, yeah, I, I nearly died because of it. Mm. Um, to the point where they didn't think I was going to make it. And the padre or the, the priest yeah. at Singleton because my parents were living down here at the time and the duty officer in full ceremonial uniform knocked on their door about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning and said, pack your bags, we're going to Darwin because we're not sure if your son's going to make it. So, I couldn't imagine what that would be like. Yeah, so the, the effect was not just on me, it was on my family as well yeah. and that's one of the things that, that hits your heart as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Wow. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I've knocked on plenty of doors myself and given that sort of bad news, and it's um, that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's and, not and and the reaction that you see, and the it's almost like the light disappears from their eyes. You know. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. Some people actually react quite differently to what you expect, but um, yeah. Nonetheless, it's, it's unpredictable. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, it's I could I, actually I couldn't imagine what it would be like on the receiving end of that knock at the door. Right. Actually, I, I, yeah. I couldn't imagine it. I don't want to imagine it. Yeah. So uh, even though I've done it plenty of times, I <laughs> so I guess the main takeaway is that the the reason for my PTSD isn't combat related. Um, you know, we responded to a fair amount of conflicts over there. Um, I never saw direct action. Um, so. Yeah, you know, the re the reason for my my brain being so messed up is a is a a major head injury. Yeah, right. Um, you know, and 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 all of those fears that go along with it. You know, trusting other people to drive, being a passenger, yeah, enclosed spaces. I mean, even when even when you've been overseas for six months um, or more, and hats off to all the guys and girls that are over serving long, long periods of time overseas yeah. that have done multiple tours to Afghanistan, Iraq. Yeah. You know, when you come back to Australia, you you have a real issue adjusting back to normal life um, because your body has been on high alert every single day for a certain period of time. Months and months. Yeah, yeah. And, and then when you come back and you're, you're looking around and you it's almost at a... It's almost a disgust, you know. Look at all these people just wandering around their daily lives, completely unaware. Yeah, and well, it, and it must be the same feeling with police and fire and rescue and emergency services as well, because, and that must be a constant thing 
and and like you've mentioned in your previous episodes, you know, we, we train specifically for these events that we go or these tours that we go on. Um, so you're preparing yourself mentally for what's ahead. Whereas when you're in the emergency services, you never know what's around the next corner and it could be a completely life-changing event mm. and not you might not even know it at the time. It might sneak up on you many years later. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's how it happens to a lot of us, I think. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, it is one of those things, you know, it's, um, yeah, I guess li- living in that uh, state of alertness for a long, long time, it, yeah, it's yeah. taxing. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. And I think re- like, like no doubt, as you said, going over on a deployment and coming home and the world is weird to you, I think you recalibrate What's You're important normal. to you. Yeah. yeah, but I think you recalibrate what's normal and what's not normal. And for yeah. you, just like, it, yeah, it, it's like normal life is not normal. No. <laughs> it's no. not. And, uh, it's I remember, yeah. I do remember being able to get out uh, away from hospital because I, I was in hospital for quite a long time because the blood that was in my brain took, I'm going to say, almost a year to completely uh, dissipate. And the fear was that while it's there, that it could clot and that I could stroke. Yeah. Um, I don't think it, the fear was an aneurysm. I'm, I think that's a completely different thing. But, but yeah, that, that you know, while, while I, there was a chance that I could stroke um, yeah. because there was blood in my brain still present, they wanted me to be right there. Ready. Ready. Yeah, um, right. So even though physically I could – I was fine – I was completely recovered. Yeah. Um, I, I had to hang around the hospital like a bloody piece of the furniture. Um, that must have been so frustrating when you oh, felt, felt like you were back. Very much yeah. so. And yeah. um, I don't smoke anymore and I haven't smoked since about, oh, I'm going to say 2002. But, um, yeah, I took it up then, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. Because it was... Yeah, so fucking boring. Yeah, yeah, I don't <laughs> yeah. doubt it. Yeah, wow, living in a hospital. But I remember the first time driving into the centre of Brisbane, like Queen Street Mall area, and seeing all the people everywhere and and how uneasy it I felt. I felt very, very weird right. and like there was too much information. Yeah, right. Like I couldn't handle... I couldn't handle... It the complexity of my environment. Right. Um, I, I needed to be out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the feeling I had. I, I needed to get away and be right uh, in a place of, of quietness and calmness. Calmness. Yeah. Um, because your, your fight or flight mode hasn't, I guess, switched off. Right. Yeah, okay. Yet. Or mine didn't anyway. Some people can cope with it amazingly well. Yeah. And um, I've known people that are still in that have done multiple deployments and been in multiple skirmishes and, and overseas and seen some pretty messed up stuff and they're, they're still in the army and they're still right as rain. Yeah. That's amazing, isn't it? Like so, how, how different things affect different people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's one thing I have learned in all of this is uh, just how different people's journeys can be to 
ending up in the same room as yeah. you and yeah. me, <laughs> and you, you, yeah, hear their, right. you hear their stories, and you go, "Yeah, wow, you know, that's very different." But not ironically, that's not the right way to put it. But it is usually the symptoms and treatments and the post process is all pretty similar. Yeah, um, it all it all seems to converge. It does. Yeah. Yeah. No matter how you got there, you, when you're there, it's you yeah, know, it's a very similar storyline from yeah. there on. And it and it it it. To me, sometimes it highlights how little we know about our brains. Yeah. yeah. And and the fact that, you know, you and I have been to places where, you know, you know, a, a, a drug addict, somebody that has been experienced rape, um, you know, somebody that has experienced combat, somebody that has experienced a loved one die in a car accident. Yeah all these so many different varieties of people can all get lumped into the same yeah. facility yeah. and still all go to the same classes uh, teaching you mindfulness teaching yeah. you things coping coping strategies yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that sort of thing um it, it surprised me at first and i resisted it for quite a while yeah. how how they or why they would do that and I guess what I learned in the end is that, you know, every person's story is their own and it's just as important yeah. as everybody else's story. And the old saying that, um, oh, you know, there's a lot worse things happening to people than me, yeah. you know, all over the world. To try and compare and to contrast. To try, try and compare <laughs> and contrast your experience with others it just doesn't work. No. And... Um, you know the 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 person that you know was abused by their by their foster parents their whole lives and managed to escape and is dealing with that yeah that PTSD her or his story is just as important as um as yours and mine absolutely um yeah. because it you know yeah. it's it's such a personal thing yeah still had a massive impact on that individual that's yeah. right doesn't matter how it happened that's right. So we talked a little bit earlier about your memory of your childhood and uh, that sort of being pretty absent for the most part. So yeah. is that um, – am I right in saying that sort of pretty much up until your traumatic brain injury is where it's very – Very foggy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, the more recent events prior to my brain injury, not so much, but – I would say three to five years maybe prior to my, my brain injury or my head injury. <laughs> yeah, I, I, for a while there I couldn't remember anything at all about my childhood. Um, some things started to come back by themselves but most didn't and I had to – I think my brain naturally started to put together stories from what my family members had told me right. about what I did and where I was and what happened and the way yeah. I behaved and and significant events or even non-significant events. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, the the frustrating thing about that is is that you don't know if what you're remembering is as a result of what they've told you. And then you've sort of stitched together a story or if it's actually your memories. So you don't know if it's what's true and what's not. Yeah. 
um, I guess you just have to have faith in your your family members and the well, people that were there that that's what happened. Did they tell you you're an absolute angel and really well behaved? <laughs> I was going to say, surely no. they took advantage of this opportunity. <laughs> no, no, they didn't. No, yeah. they've been really good and um, they've been telling me um, – the facts, <laughs> yeah. Right. Regardless of how good or bad, <laughs> um, they 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 were. Yeah. Um, I think that's important to have a, even though you can't remember it yourself. I think it's important to have a realistic picture of, of um who you are. If you even if you can't remember it yourself. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. <laughs> that w- that would be funny. Oh yeah, you used to be an aircraft pilot. Don't you yeah. remember that? <laughs> Here's a plane. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So no. you, um, I remember you telling me about uh, coming out of the coma, and that yeah, sort yeah. of moment. Yeah. Yeah. So they transported me to Delhi Hospital, which is the capital of East Timor, and it was a military hospital set up, and they put me on uh, life support. I guess you could say. Um, I was I was initially on breathing. Um, Everything, uh, you know, like heart, I don't know, what, whatever. I, I had a direct line to my heart yep. um, through my chest, which had wow. a couple of leads coming out of it, which was quite weird. Um, catheter and, yeah, I was, I was put on full life support and they got me off my breathing and I, I started breathing by myself and that was really good. And then about a week into it, it might have been about 10 days, I'm not sure, how long it was, um, they said, well, this is, he's looking really good. Let's see if he can support himself. Right. And um, little did I know, but when I was out of it, the Padre um, and my section, those could, those who could attend, were standing around my bed with their, <laughs> you know, praying um, from what I can vaguely remember because I was pretty heavily under some drugs at the time. And they, they woke me up and um, I I looked around and said, cut it there, fellas, because it looked like they were praying <laughs> for for me. I don't know if they were or not, but that's that's the sort of yeah. feeling, the vibe that I was getting. And, um, yeah, I just said, cut it there, fellas, what's going on? And they were all fairly stoked that <laughs> I, um, I wasn't dead. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose, or that I woke up and, I, and, and, yeah. and that, that I was, you know, cognizant and yeah, able yeah. to yeah. able to have a bit of a joke. Yeah, well, I was going to yeah. say it's probably uh, it was would have been a huge unknown right there and then. And uh, well, I didn't even know it had happened. Yeah, because right. I, I don't remember any of it. Yeah, okay. I don't, I don't. I don't remember. I've been told stories of me wandering around screaming, thinking that thinking that we've been ambushed, and um, you know, there's blood coming out of different places in my oh, head, yeah. eyes and eyes and nose and ears, that sort of thing. And and they had a bad time getting me into the ambulance because when you when you've got a bad hand injury you you go into protect yourself kind of yeah. mode. Yeah. So I put up a bit of a fight getting into the um field ambulance. Right. Um you know, just things I've been told. Um yeah. So after that happened I woke up. Um the next step was to get me back to Australia, so they flew me low level in a Hercules in a hospital bed with a medical team. Um, we were, I would say, no more than a hundred feet off the water. 
oh. at a guess. I could see the water out of my window. Wow. Um, to the side, <laughs> um, back to Australia. And, and you know, East Timor is only, it's not very far off Australia's no, coast no, at no. all. It's, what, five or 600 nautical miles? Yeah, it's, it's not far. It's not that yeah. far. And, um, yeah, we spent some time in Robinson Barracks in uh, at the military hospital there in Darwin or Palmerson, I think it might be, yeah, which right. is just, just out of Darwin. Yeah. And the family were able to come and see me and right. visit, um, which is which was nice. And then when I was stable enough, where they weren't concerned about pressure, um, I flew back to Anogra and spent the rest of my time at the military hospital yeah, okay. at Anogra in in Brisbane. Yeah, yeah. So, how long did it take you to get back operational in the army again? Uh, not that long, I would say. Um, Less than two years, yeah, I was wow. I was back, and when I look at when I look back at what I did is is I overcompensated a lot. Um, I wasn't a very I was a good soldier, but I wasn't a outstanding soldier right. at the time before the accident. Before the accident, yeah. um, I was sort of making ways to getting promotion um, from private at that stage. Yeah. Um, and then I, I started to really, really concentrate on being the very best that I could be in every aspect, physically, mentally. I wanted to be the best and lead from the front, basically. Right. So I started doing stupid. I, I started doing PT twice a day, and just trying to just beat everyone at, right. e- at everything. And that happened for a long, long time. And then. Um, it wasn't until I, I made it to sergeant and I'd been posted to Singleton as an instructor um, a couple of years into that posting where one day I was driving to the Blue Mountains because rock climbing is one of my hobbies, um, one of my passions actually. It's it's a state of meditation for me because you nothing else matters than, yeah. what, than what's going on. Nothing else can matter at that time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, for me anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So yeah. you're so focused on what you're doing that yeah. it's that it the rest of the world kind you of... You still dis- see your train at your fingerboard up on the wall there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> still it it gets it. a bit of a workout still into it. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it, I was on the, my, my way to the Blue Mountains and I was going around a corner and all of a sudden um, I felt like I was having a heart attack and my arms kind of seized up. And I went into an instant sweat. My heart rate increased. Um, I had what's what you describe as a disassociative moment. Yeah, right. Um, I nearly crashed because of that. And um, I was like, what the fuck is going on? And, and then uh, I managed to limp my way to the... Um, the public telephone, which is about halfway along the Putty Road on the way to the Blue Mountains and called my mother and got her to come and get me. And so I had someone to follow. Yeah, okay. Um, back to back to Singleton. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it all went downhill from there in a very quick manner. Did it? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you go back to work after that point? I did, um, but I... I went and saw the psych um, immediately yep. and said, hey, this has happened. And um, as soon as you report... 
Did you know some, it was like a psychological thing at that point? Were you sure of that or did you go through a medical test to make sure it wasn't a a medical thing? Did you question that? I, I didn't question the medical side of it because of how fit yeah, and okay. healthy I was right. at that time. And, you know, I had just over 6% body fat and I was just God. a very strong, yeah, okay. very fit individual and... You know, I, I just I, – I never doubted for a second that it, it, it had to be something psychological. Right. And I just – and my – the army psychologist said, yeah, that, that's a panic attack. Um, we're going to have to put you on restricted duties. And I'm like, okay, what does that entail? Little did I know that that basically means no weapons and no driving, which, which is as an infantry soldier <laughs> – as that's an instructor, your trade, right? that's yeah. your trade. Yeah. Uh, your trade is weapons, and you know how to use them safely and effectively. And it's uh, it's a similar problem in the cops, unfortunately. Yeah. It, it it's almost like they strip you of your identity. Yeah, it's a big part of who you who you are and what you do. Yeah, and then they put me in a rehabilitation platoon as the platoon sergeant. So I had to deal with injured or core transferring or getting booted out of the army or, you know, people, kids, that, young kids that were in trouble with the law or whatever mm. was going on in their life. I had to deal with their administrative nightmares as well as my own. And um, I ended up... So they sort of didn't give you a break. They just no. made you responsible for people with lots of problems yeah wow yeah that's that's how to look after you yeah yeah, yeah it is yeah <laughs> and 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 as you know when you're when you're so focused on your own well-being and you're so worried about what's going on with your brain you know yeah. what your future holds admin- like everything, yeah, everything yeah. dealing with complex administration issues for yourself yeah. let alone for others is almost an impossible task um so I I did a fight or flight thing and I flew. I pretended basically and I convinced my psych, the army psych, that I was okay and that I was good to go and I hadn't had another episode and I was fine, I was all good. And I put in a voluntary discharge. Right. To get the fuck out of there as quick as I could. So... And I'm pretty sure my CO at the time and RSM at the time knew what was going on and they signed off on my voluntary discharge. So I went to the Blue Mountains and... Um, no trying to get you back. Like when you're saying you're fine, they didn't try and talk you into staying, obviously. No, no. Yeah. They, it felt to me like they, they knew they were trying to get... They were getting rid of a problem getting or a, a problem. potential problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> despite all I'd given up to that point... That it, it's like they just want to they just want to sweep you under the rug yeah. and forget about you. Yeah. Um, and I, and I'm not sure how I'd react if I met that guy in the street, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, right. Um, because at that time it felt as though he had his best interests yeah. at heart and not mine. And um, he saw an easy easy option. And he, he saw an easy option and took it. Didn't, didn't matter the consequences on an other individual. Right. And, and and the fact is he's gotten away with it and mm. he's progressed with his career. He got promoted and sent to Canberra and, you know, had to do his thing after that as a full colonel and, yeah. So um, <laughs> anyway, 
I went to the Blue Mountains, did completely the wrong thing and smoked pot just about every day and just went climbing with a mate that had a house up there and stayed at his place as a form of escapism, I guess you could say. Yeah. What uh, year was that? Uh, that was end of 2008 yeah, right. uh, and the whole of 2009 almost. Now, my my mother, who's always looked after me. You couldn't have been too bad because I don't remember coming across you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was – I was on um, antidepressants at the time as well. Right, yeah. Um, but, yeah, she she sort of realised that time was running out and money was going to run out soon because the army would stop paying me because um, I had a heap of leave built up. Oh, you were, yeah, okay. You're using the entitlements, yeah. Yeah, I, was, I, I had a lot of leave from Timor and um, – and leave that I hadn't taken built yeah. up um, and long service leave. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that almost equated to a year's worth of yeah. getting paid yeah. and um, me having to do stuff all except get stoned and go climbing. And, um, yeah, so she ended up buying a, a small business for me, a mobile rock climbing wall, and I tried that for as long as I could and the crowds got to me after a while. Right. Um, and I couldn't handle it. Yeah, customer service is not a uh, <laughs> not a not a not a huge attribute of people with this damn condition, is it? <laughs> no. And then I worked in a couple of cafes for a few years, and then wow. I. How did you find that? Because uh, I found those environments really tricky for a long. Well, I still I was, do I was in the, so. I was in the back section. I was in the kitchen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, so, if I had a bad day, I could ask. I could say, "Hey, can I be on prep today yeah. or something okay. like that?" And just out of sight, and just yeah. out of sight, and yeah. just you know, just cutting stuff up or, or whatever, and you know yeah. that was it. That's yeah. all I had to do. It was very simple. I didn't have to deal with customers. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so I was never in that position. I was always in the kitchen. I was um, doing short order cooking, that sort of thing. And then um, I did a stint at Warner's Bay, um, at the uh, their their mental ward, I guess you'd call it there yep. because um, I, I went downhill for a bit and I got once I got out of there, I got quite stable on a medication and I decided to go to the mines or try and go to the mines. Yep. Um, I was successful and, and started working in the mines and I, you know, almost, about seven years I worked in the mines until I think January 2020 was my last day um, because I started having panic attacks again. So yeah, it was, it was right. yeah, almost seven years of being completely stable and fine on this medication and then it, it's broke like a, through it, again. It, it broke through and stopped working and, yeah. yeah, so I started having panic attacks again. And unfortunately, it's all just PR, that crap they go on about, you know, are you okay day <laughs> and, and um, you know, we support the Black Dog Institute and all yeah. that crap because... Once your leave runs out, <laughs> that's it. They don't want to know you. Yeah. You know. And it was just lucky that, <laughs> that somebody mentioned to me that the mine super had a income protection. Oh, built into built it. Built into yeah. it. Right. And I was able to use that to yeah. get myself um, sort of through it. And then I then did in quite quick succession another – uh, two stints at um, Toronto Private Hospital yep. in the mental ward there. On the, it's called Woodlands? Woodlands, yeah. Woodlands. Um, and then oh, it would have been about 
a three to six month break, something like that, and I had to go in again because I was, yeah, I was on a roller coaster of antidepressants, and it w- would work, and then it wouldn't work, and yeah. then, then I'd have to wean off that, try another one, go to the dark place, yeah. and then try another one, and then wean off That's that, a wild ride. and, and, and you're, you're going <laughs> up and down and up and yeah. down and up and down, and chaotic life at that point, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and the only way you can effectively for me anyway, wean off and wean on to an antidepressant was to go into hospital. Yeah, right. Because when you're in that dark place, when you're completely weaning off an antidepressant, yeah. you know, there's some pretty evil, horrible thoughts that go through your head that... Mm. that um, yeah, you don't want to be sitting at home alone then. No, no, <laughs> no, no. So um, I finally settled on this drug called Parnate and... It, from the research that I've done as well as what, from what I've been told, it is like a last resort right? Um, treatment-resistant um, antidepressant. And it worked for mm, close to six months. But then I had to start taking more and more and more of it and upping the dose and it actually had started to have the opposite effect on me. It started to make me more anxious. Yeah, right. Luckily, I was able to get onto the... Um, S-ketamine treatment program, yep. which you're obviously very interested yeah, in, in yeah. knowing about. Absolutely. Um, so S-ketamine is a is a stronger version of ketamine, which they use as a, a deliberately disassociative. That's my dog groaning in the background. <laughs> she's De- la- she's wanting attention. I think. Yeah, yeah. Look at it, it. It's a deliberately disassociative drug, from what I understand, that Ambos can give to accident victims yep. and things like that to try and help them with future PTSD to try and disassociate them from the horrible events that have just happened, um, whether it be that they witness a loved one die or or whatever it may be. Um, and this is a nasal spray. So you, you spray one in each nostril, you wait five minutes, you get another canister, you spray another spray in each nostril, you wait five minutes and you do it lots of as you're inhaling through your nostrils and then you do a third one. So after the third one, they leave the room, they dim the lights. So this you're doing this in a clinical setting? In a, cl- in a clinical not setting a with a nurse. Like yeah. With a nurse. Um, so at, at a proper proper um, practice that's yeah. set up specifically for the purpose. Um, it's a, I think they call it a class eight drug. Yes. Yes, eight. Yeah, that's it, right. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is a very highly restricted yeah, really controlled. and very yeah. controlled drug, you know, to the point where you know, the nurses have to, when they go to the, a safe, you know, and they they have a witness, they have to have a witness with them and another nurse before they sign out the drugs for the patient yeah. and it's co-signed and it's from there, it's it's witnessed that they walk directly into the, the treatment room yeah. and administer the drugs and there's and there's cameras and all that sort of stuff yeah, to, okay. to monitor it all and it's yeah. all very, very tightly controlled. Um, so, yeah, after the... The third dose, you you sort of sit back, relax, and you put on music, or you put in earplugs, or you do whatever's good for you. Yeah, whatever feels good for you. And the first time you go in, you're a bit scared because uh, you're unsure of. Yeah, I don't doubt it. Yeah, of, um, it's a big step, I think, isn't it? Like, yeah, because it is. It is a psychedelic style. Yeah. Um, Treatment and it's technically still in trial, isn't it? It's sort of. Oh, well, no, I don't think not, it is. No, that's I don't out of trial is. now. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah, MDMA is the one that that's, is that's still in trial. Is, is still yeah. in trial and and it is slowly getting introduced into Australia now. Yeah. 
But yeah, esketamine, basically what it does um, is it sends you on a bit of a psychedelic trip or a journey and depending on your state of mind and depending on what you're thinking about, you can actually control it in a way. So let's say as you start to sink back into your chair and you start to disassociate from the world around you, if I believe that I'm in the Blue Mountains climbing, it feels like I am. Right. Physically as well as mentally and I can see everything as sharp as yeah, as, a, been, as, yeah. if, as if I was there huh. and, and almost to the point where, and it sounds weird, but you can feel and hear things as well. Um, so you go into a very, very deep psychedelic state and it actually can bring forth some pretty bad memories that you have pushed to the back of your mind um, while you're doing that. The, the beauty of the treatment is though that you can control the circumstances in which you deal with those issues. Yeah, right. So for instance, if you've got a an issue of some kind that you've you've suppressed over the years and it comes forth, you can either choose to deal with it how you want to deal with it or you can just push it aside yeah, okay. and deal with it another day and just concentrate on the experience. Okay, so, so you're still in control. Of you're, you're still in control. It's not like you're spiraling into this crazy technicolor. Right, and 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 there are moments where you can spiral into a crazy technicolor, weird, almost feels like a quantum realm of some kind. Right, but if that happens, and you start to, to panic a little bit, all you have to do is open your eyes, and it's an instant grounding sensation, is that right? and you're in the room, and you're like, oh shit. I'm okay. I'm in a room. You know, there's my assistant's dog, Miley, sitting over there snoring away and yeah, yeah. <laughs> having a in sleep a usual or what, position. whatever. <laughs> and, and I can see the light around the doorway and I'm okay. A little bit of breathing exercises to ground yourself and close your eyes and you can sink back into it. Right. So you can... You can so sort of it's it's almost a choose dip, choose your own adventure. You're basically. dipping in and dipping out of it at your own at, at your, your own, own leisure. Control. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. And yeah. and the scientific and we were discussing it earlier yeah. prior to the podcast, but the the scientific explanation um, behind that it's it's not just a a psychotherapy benefit that you is that the word yeah yeah benefit that you get from esketamine, but it's also a um, what it does is it stimulates uh, what is it? What's the word? Glut- glutamate. Glutamate. Glutamate, yeah. which is the main, um, I guess, substance that um, helps build neuro connections or neural connections. I'm not a scientist in any way, shape, or form. So if I butcher this, then <laughs> I'm sure know. we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll it's right. it's meant to meant to help um, either rebuild or bolster neural connections yeah um and why that's relevant for me is because the amount of time that i had blood in my brain my neural connections would have had to either shut down and reroute themselves um and you know we we mentioned it again Mm. earlier but the neuroplasticity of the brain and prioritize different parts of my body that needed to be obviously functioning to stay alive and parts that didn't like memory or, um, you know, control of emotions and things like that. Yeah. Um, they sort of take a back seat. 
and um, I guess esketamine is supposed to help rebuild those neural pathways or yeah. at least bolster the ones that you've got um, already that may have degraded due to your PTSD. Yeah, right. And when you talk about, um, I suppose, managing the the treatment and, and it can bring up those suppressed deep memories. Yeah. When you're talking about dealing with them or, um, you know, addressing them, is that... So, so what, I, what I did after every session is I, I diaried, I, I right. journaled. And I journaled in as much detail as possible, no matter how crazy the journey was. Yeah, right. And what that allowed my psychologist to do is I, I would actually read them to my psychologist and what that would allow her to do is extrapolate relevant information and then through either EMDR, which is yep. the rapid eye movement therapy, yep. or, or other means have a, a base or an area in which to concentrate on to help... To focus in to, on. To, to, to focus in on to, yeah, right. to help with your recovery. Um, so I, I found So it's that not like you do esketamine treatment... And that replaces psychology or no, no, psychiatrist's no, no. overviews or whatever. Yeah, no, no. It's it's a it's it's another it's another tool, I guess you could say, yeah. to, to help you um, recover. And it's got a decent success rate. Yeah. Um, not as good as apparently MDMA have has been having, right? Um, because an, an MDMA session, in its pure medical form, not the party drug, <laughs> has. Um, has a psychologist and a nurse and you're actually having a therapy session whilst you're on while you're at, whilst you're on, in, on under the influence of, yeah, of right. MDMA so right. they they have a lot higher success rate in that regard um, but yeah it, needless to say it, it has still been very helpful for me yeah good um, I managed to get off Parnate completely yeah because that had some pretty serious side effects, didn't it? It did, yeah. yeah. I had some really bad panic attacks on that stuff. Yeah, yeah. It can, it can, it messed me up a bit physically as well. Yeah, right. Um, so that that's um. So how many treatments have you had now on of ooh, the escitamine? I've had eighteen treatments now. Um, there's twenty four in total, so I think I got four or five left. Okay. Well, it might have been sixteen treatments I've had now. I know I'm about halfway through my second lot of twelve, so you get right. you get approval twelve at a time, okay? Because yeah. that's the standard. And um, initially, you do twice a week, and then after eight weeks, you do once a week, yeah, which okay. is like a, uh, a maintenance dose, yes, I guess right. you could say. Yeah. Um, and they become less psychedelic in, in in their experiences when because okay. your body starts to become used to the drug. Yeah, right, right. As well, and they become more like a deep meditation. Okay. Uh, like a your own guided meditation, I suppose. And that, that depends on you and what music you listen to and what focus and what attitude you go into the session with. Right. And that's important. So I found if I go into there with a overly anxious, horrible attitude... I'll get less out of it than if yeah. I go in there with a positive, I want to work on this today. You know, I want to work yeah, on right. this feeling, this fear of driving that I have or fear of crowds or fear of whatever. I want to work on that today and think about that today. Yeah. And then if it becomes a little bit too scary for you, 
like I said earlier, you can just open your eyes and ground yourself. Yeah. And then concentrate on something else, yep. something that you like doing, for yeah, example, okay. and go on a bit of a journey. So. Yeah. And how long does a normal session last for from the treatment? Um, it can be anywhere from an hour to two hours, depending on um, your rate of absorption for the day and um, <laughs> your bird's going on in the background. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't believe this phone, this, this microphone is picking that up. It's crazy. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so some days, like my last treatment, which was just recently on uh, two days ago, uh, yesterday, sorry, yesterday, um, it was more like a deep meditation right? and not like a psychedelic experience. It was more like a relaxing, nice contemplation style grounding yep. sort of a experience for me. Whereas other experiences I've had have been literally flying away from the planet Earth and and, wow. and flying throughout the galaxy and the universe and seeing humanity as a whole and trying to find your answers out in the deep dark space <laughs> yeah and then and then actually trying find, trying to find your way back to earth wow and things like that and 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 even that hasn't scared you at all when that sort of stuff's going on you still feel like you're controlling not, not really you still feel like you have um control yeah, yeah. Okay. and and if like i said at any stage that you feel like you're out of control you just open your eyes yeah and everything's fine yeah. so it's 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 not as scary as as I first thought. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's, yeah, that's certainly nothing. The little bits and pieces that I'd heard about it before today, yeah, it certainly wasn't what I thought it would have been yeah. like. And then, yeah, this is sort of. I, I guess the main the main takeaway that I've got from all of those experiences is that you just have to relax and let it happen, and just be, be a passenger, mm. be part of the journey, and just kind of, you know. Just, just let yourself, let it all happen, yeah, and, and happen. don't resist. Yeah. Don't don't try and fight it. Um, yeah, because that's that's when the you mindset get side of things would have to be uh, um, a big part of it. Oh no, actually, a couple of police that I know that yeah are dealing with PTSD. I know they've got this ingrained, inbuilt. That's a you know that's like a, a drug. Fight. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I'm yeah. not gonna. That's not for yeah. me. And I, yeah. I could imagine them having a lot of that resistant. Like yeah, if, yeah. if they were eligible for it yeah. and it was the right thing for them to do, I could just see that. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. programmed barrier of absolutely, you know, absolutely. That that have an inbuilt firewall. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's uh, it's been interesting actually. The different discussions that we've had at the group between the Ambos that are quite used to yep. administering that sort of stuff on right. the road before, yep. but then the cops are. You know, programmed to think that's a drug. I'm, that's I arrest people that but, use but that. But that's shit. <laughs> that's how I was in the army yeah. for a little bit. And the only reason that I was more receptive to it was because I had been at the end of my tether quite a few times. Yeah. And um, also that rebellious aspect of me. Once I left the army and was like basically fuck the army and I sold everything that I had that was in related to the army. Yeah, okay. To a, a um disposal one of those army disposal <laughs> stores and um and I was smoking pot and I was like, yeah, and I got some piercings and I was like, yeah, this is yeah, the new you. This is the new me and <laughs> and um and then reality hits yeah. and your money runs out and it's like, oh shit. <laughs> I've got to go and get a job now. Yeah, got to get on with it. What is it? What is an infantry soldier that specialises in weaponry 
and tactics <laughs> do in the civilian world. Yeah. It's like, oh, God's sakes. Might fix watches or something. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Who yeah, knows? Yeah, which is a good segue. So we need to talk about Miley. Miley. Yeah. Miley. Miley is my beautiful. Uh, she's almost three and a half years old. She's a Labrador. She's, she's hearing a name. Yeah. She's a Labrador <laughs> and she's my um, accredited assistance dog, which is a huge difference to a companion dog. Yeah. So an accredited assistance dog has the same rights and is allowed in the same places as a seeing eye dog. So we're talking almost everywhere, yeah, except for an operating theatre. Yeah, okay, because that's a sterile environment. Yeah. But you know, hospitals, cafes, banks, planes, trains, yeah, right. wherever they're allowed legally. Yeah, um, and with that comes a responsibility because it's a public liability issue. So the first thing that you do is that you apply for an assistance dog through whatever organisation that you're associated with. Yep. Um, they will then contact whoever they work with, with assistance dogs, and DVA works with Integra, um, Assistance oh, yeah. Dogs Australia. Yeah. Um, so I contacted DVA, Department of Veteran Affairs, is DVA. Sorry, I keep using acronyms. Oh, it's all good, I think. Our, uh, our listeners would probably get that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's all good. So I, con I contact them, they contact Integra Dogs and then they set up a phone interview. So I had my mother with me for moral support, I suppose, uh, for the phone interview. It goes for about 45 minutes and they talk about your life and what stage of your life you're in and what your living arrangements are and all that sort of stuff. And then... They are, if they're satisfied with that interview, they arrange a time to come and see you personally. So it turned out that my actual trainer, the guy that provided the dog and also put me through the training, he came out to my house and said, look, you're going to have to do this. You'll have to build this fence. You'll have to bolster this area. You've got to make the, the, the yard dog safe, yada, yada, yada. Um, but they're also looking at your living conditions as well and whether or not you can look after yourself as a person. Yeah. Because the fact of the matter is that if you can't look after yourself, how can you be expected to look after the health and the well-being of a dog yeah. as well? Yeah. Because they don't just require to be fed and, you know, have fresh water and to be groomed and to make sure that their teeth and... You know, every, all that sort of stuff is nails and claws or whatever you want to call them are all, you know, perfect and everything like that. Healthy. It's a healthy dog. Yeah. Um, you know, they they also require that you train them continuously. Not, not you don't have to do it every single day. You can have yeah. days off. It's not a, that's not a big deal. But for public liability reasons, you, you're taking an animal out into the street and if it misbehaves and bites or snips or, or does something that it shouldn't do and causes an accident, yeah. someone trips over it, whatever the case may be, 
you're then liable or yeah right you know for for, for that yeah yeah, yeah. Um, even though you've got a licensed licensed yeah. um animal I was going to say if I tried to take any of my dogs into a cafe and expected it to behave yeah that would take a lot of work exactly <laughs> right so so when I go into a cafe with Miley you know she's looking at me I'm making sure her her attention is on me. Um, she's at, on my left or on my right, depending on the seating arrangement, or even sometimes behind me if it's a narrow walkway, whatever. But when I sit down, I'll have her under my legs um, or up against the wall off to the side, away from foot traffic so she doesn't get a tail accidentally stepped on, all yeah. that sort of stuff. And I'll have her lead. I'll, I'll be sitting on her lead. Right, okay. Basically. Um, and she stays there the entire time. I could be there for an hour yeah. talking with, you know, my girlfriend and, you know, having a coffee and breakfast and whatever. Yeah. And she just stays there um, completely silent. Every now and then what I'll do if I'm staying there for an extended period of time is I'll, I'll, I'll deliberately let her stand up, have a bit of a shake, yeah. um, stretch her legs, you know, have a bit of a sniff around the local sort of area without interacting with people. And then she'll be back down, yeah. And she'll be, she'll be there. She'll she'll stay there. So I'm not I'm not fully strict as far as that goes because let's face it, they're dogs. They got to yeah yeah. They're like people. They got to yeah. they got to stand up and stretch and yeah, yeah. whatever else. But so going back to my trainer visited me, interviewed me, looked at how clean and healthy I was in the place, and you know that I had my shit together basically. Yeah. And he could he could then get a sense that I could look after the animal yep. and not treat and that I wasn't a an alcohol or drug abuser and I wouldn't treat the animal poorly. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't strike it, I wouldn't do anything, you know, to harm the animal or anything yep. like that. So they they they're kind of psychologically scoping you out as well. Yeah, and it's a, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because when you think about the condition PTSD, yeah. a lot of the characteristics of people with PTSD are problems with anger. Yeah. Not looking after themselves. Yeah, yeah. Incapable yeah. of doing so much stuff. Yeah, and, 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 and there are times when I fall off the bandwagon yeah. in that in that regards. But he he also knows that I have a fairly rock solid um plan when it comes to that sort of thing. I have close family members. Yeah, right. You know, I've I could have my sister one of my sisters or my mother or whatever come around and say, Hey, yeah. you've been in the house a couple of days, you haven't done anything. Let's go for a walk. How about you get out and about? How about we go down to the cafe? Yeah, right. Whatever, and and kick my ass a little bit. Yeah, in that regards, I think that's important because th- this is sometimes this comes up about these like someone so should get a dog, yeah, like should get a support dog, yeah, and, yeah. and yeah. it's because they're dysfunctional. It's because they're not right traveling well and then yeah. people think that you know throwing a dog in the mix is a good idea for that person and yeah it's not it's not a it's good not idea for, for them everyone. or the dog yeah it's really. not it's not for everyone at all yeah um and there has been moments when i wanted to hand her back right because i've been so angry and frustrated with how she's behaving or or and and, and which how is how much which work is, you've got to do how that's, much work you've that's got what to do. i couldn't believe yeah exactly right and and it, and it is a direct reflection of how you're doing at the time right so, you know, if, if I'm doing well, I'm taking her for walks. I'm going down to the local supermarket. I'm having a bit of fun with her and deliberately lightening up 
uh, I guess, the mood to, right. to make it more sort of um, – or to make it easier for, for me to cope with the situation because unfortunately when you're going through a supermarket, there's, there's judgment or any public area at all. There's judgment. There's like, well, he's not blind. Yeah. Why does he have a dog in here? I don't understand. The majority of the population don't understand that there are other dogs other than blind. Other than seeing eye dogs. Than yeah. seeing eye dogs. Yeah. So they, that, that's one of the other questions I get. Because um, you've had some decent arguments about access yeah, yeah. and stuff. Access, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and a lot of people in cafes or restaurants or whatever, they're, they're unaware of the rights right. um, of an accredited assistance dog. And you get an actual license. You get a license with your picture and her picture right next to it. Right. Um, and you can show them. You can say, this: she is an accredited assistance dog. Here is your proof. Here's a QR code on the back that explains everything. Right. Um, and basically, I would say two places I've had to go... I'm coming in, you're serving me, call the cops if you want to. They're going to tell you the, what the law is. Mm. Now, do you want to embarrass yourself or do you want to serve me? Yeah, and well, I do it out of principle. Yeah, okay. I'm not I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to serve me at that point. but I'm, I'm not going to walk away. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, once once that interview is over, going back to that, um, they then go away and say, hey, look, we'll look for a dog for you, okay? They'll, they'll, they'll tell you um, a few days later um, after they discuss it with their colleagues whether or not you're legible for your... Right. Your, yeah. um, you, you're able to get one. And if you are, they'll go, good news, you're able to get one, we'll look for one for you, we'll let you know. Could be six months, could be three months, could be a year. It just depends on availability. Yeah. Um. Luckily, it was only like six weeks for me. Wow. Yeah, that's and, quick. Um, yeah, and, and Miley came along. Um, she was taken off a previous owner for being um, physically abused, um, which is a shame. Uh, I had to work through that because I couldn't touch the top of her head for a while Yeah. Um, because she'd obviously been struck before by her previous... Um, yeah, even through all that vetting... Yeah, even still... through all that vetting, sometimes they still make mistakes. Same as yeah. every, same as everyone else. Yeah, they're they're yeah. human, you know. Yeah. They, they make mistakes. Um, but yeah, look, we've been inseparable. We, we've been inseparable since. Um, you know, we've gone through some bad patches, but yeah, I just get out and have a bit of fun with her, and yeah. and um, once the the coat is off and she's at home, she's <laughs> she's just a she's just, just a typical ha- Labrador, typical Labrador, yeah. happy happy dog. Yeah. And um, <laughs> yeah, she's a she's very, very much into human contact. Yeah, and well, um, we I tell you, we used to all look forward to you coming to group with her, and yeah, it'll be like sometimes we'll be sitting around, you know, doing our thing and thinking, "Come on, Dan, come on, take a coat off, come on." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. there she goes, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and the reason I did that was to to reinforce in her mind that it is it, it's a reward. It's a reward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so when the dog arrives, um, they spend two to three weeks with you every day. Right. Um, they get a oh, mo- the, 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 the trainer. Train- wow. They the trainer gets a motel in the same town. God. And they spend 
like eight o'clock every morning or nine o'clock, whatever time you get up in the morning, they'll meet you and they'll go, right, this is what we're doing today. And they take you through a training program Jeez. all the way leading up to going out in public, walking with the dog, switching sides, getting her to sit, drop, go between your legs um, when you're sitting down, um, you know, getting her to correctly uh, go up those escalade step style oh, yeah, auto- yeah. automatic stair things. Yeah, yeah. You know, things. Escalade things. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's different techniques that you have to do. You have to get them walking prior to actually stepping them off the end. Otherwise, their claws can get caught ah. into the end and shred their shred yeah. them. You know, rip so their claws out. Rip their yeah. claws out. So you've got to you've got to get them walking towards the end, and you've got to make sure that even in busy situations that you've got a distance between you and the person in front of you. Gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, you've got that space to get them walking before they get off the end and, and that sort of thing. And there's all these different techniques, um, crowded situations, having them walk behind you. A um, test for you and too, going and doing all that it stuff. It is, yeah. it is. But you're so focused on the dog and the training that the kind of, like I said, with the climbing, the rest of the world kind of dis- yeah. disappears. Um, so after that, they do, they pass you out if you are if you are ready to be passed out. If not then um, they'll spend extra time with you or they will go away and come back a couple of weeks later or whatever. Um, once you've been passed out and you get your actual photo licence, your proper licence, you're you're ready to go. Yeah, okay. But every six months you go through all of that again as a testing thing. So they'll come and visit you physically every six months. They'll look at the health Checking of the dog. House. Dog, yep. They'll check the dog. They'll make sure that the dog is nice and healthy. They'll make sure you're doing okay. They'll take you out. You'll go to a cafe. They'll see you in a shopping center. They'll do all the things, you know. They'll yeah. they'll test you and make sure that that you're continuously training her yeah. to make sure that she's doing her job in public, Right. that she's behaving the way she's supposed to behave. Otherwise, you know, I guess if you fail, they'll retrain, retest. Um, I don't know how many times until they take the dog off you. Yeah, right. And then they they have the right to do that. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, that could be tough too, because as you said, you're pretty inseparable. And uh, yeah, if they form a view that you're not doing the right thing by the dog, they could take her away from you. That's it. right. Like, but wow. that's right. But they are a company, um, and you know it's written all over the coat. And if you if you take one of their dogs out into the public and the dog's not behaving how it's supposed to with the coat on yeah. and it Repu- does the wrong reputational thing. Reputational problem for them. Well, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, lawyers get involved and yeah, all right. that, a bunch of stuff can go wrong. So it's, yeah, it's assistance dogs, they, they are amazing companions, but you also have to commit to getting out into the public and getting them exercised and getting and looking after them and yeah. there's a there's a lot of responsibility and I, and I guess that it, they're designed that way because it forces you to not not become a hermit. Yeah, right. So there's that yeah, there's that built in get off your ass and yeah, get bit, on with it today. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to get up and I have to toilet her and I have to feed her and yeah. I have to 
do you know training sessions with her if i if i got a bad back or whatever i'll do training sessions in the backyard yeah right you know um yeah i think there's a there's a massive misconception there with people that um <coughs> i'm not think, i'm not discouraging people from doing it yeah because although it's dawn, a lot, it's although a lot more than just a dog you throw the ball to on Sundays. Yeah, it's it's not that at all. And you can take no. it into the shops. Yeah, no, it's nothing like that. No, because if you don't if you don't keep doing it with um, dogs, they they forget it. Yeah, or they 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 play up. They they, they know what they can get yeah, away they with. They, they, yeah, they can get away with it. <laughs> They're smart. Or they'll try and get away Particularly with it. Particularly Labradors. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um how long have you guys been together now? Uh so it was May last year. So May. Yeah, okay. So a year. Twelve yeah. months. Yeah, yep. twelve months. Yeah. So I've had my I had my second assessment recently. Right. Um in Maitland. Yeah. So I met up with the trainer in Maitland and um yeah. did the assessment there. Yeah, there's certainly a lot more to it. Like uh, the bits and pieces that you've told me over the time is I just couldn't believe how much work they were. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, they are. And and just watching you and with do- them, dogs like, in dogs in general are a lot of work. Yeah. Um if if you want to get them to behave the way that yeah. I can get hers to behave, yeah. you gotta That's a lot of you work. gotta put in the work. Yeah. Otherwise they can yeah. just be dogs. Yeah, yeah. And um Yeah, some people are are really good trainers and some people or not, and you know, you go back to the adage of if you're not in a good space with your mind and you have issues filling out forms, then um, and you're not looking after yourself or your house, or you're just having really bad problems, it's probably not for you, yeah. it's probably more for a, a later stage down the track, down the yeah. track in your, in your, um, in your journey, yeah. I guess you could say. Yeah, I think someone's mowing their lawn in the background. That's all right. Well, it's a nice place to it's a nice place to have this chat though. It is. Yeah, yeah. it's better than being surrounded by all the acoustic foam and all that rubbish. And, yeah, and, uh, locked in a nice little soundproof area, proof area. Yeah. Now tell me about watches. Oh yeah, and what I, that means to you. I initially got how, into. How, I was going to say, how on earth did I, that come about? I initially got into watches because my grandfather was into it. Guns and bombs and. Delicate little watches don't seem to go together. <laughs> no, no. I, I initially got into it because my grandfather was a a hobbyist um, horologist, which is you know the the art or the mechanics of working and servicing and understanding the workings of a, a mechanical um, or automatic a non battery powered watch. Yeah, gotcha. Um, and also battery powered watches as well. I mean, horologists do everything. They do quartz movements as well as mechanical movements, but. Um, you know, my mother gave me his um, old Rolex that he had not a, not a genuine Rolex that he'd bastardized. He'd sort of put together and right. ma- made it up himself with a quartz movement, with a battery powered movement. Yeah, there you go. And um, it, it was not running. And um, you know, I, I cracked the, the the case open, replaced a couple of um, aging components that I found on the internet, and um, replaced the battery. Uh, my dog's chewing her bone in the background, <laughs> mostly out of frustration. <laughs> She's been patient. She has been very patient. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I ended up um, thinking, well, why not? I actually really enjoyed that experience of getting mm. my grandfather's watch going. Uh, why not 
look into it a little bit deeper and then I, I just went down the rabbit hole um, yeah. with YouTube and God, I what's found... What's not on YouTube? Oh, I know. And <laughs> I, I found it very... Um, meditative... What's the word I'm looking for? Meditative? Meditative? Yeah. Yeah. Almost a meditation kind of state I found... With concentration. With concentration and... But also watching somebody on YouTube completely take apart a watch, service it and then put it back together yeah. and then get a non-running watch running how it's supposed to run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just fascinated with the engineering as well and just bewildered at the the mathematics that would have had to have been involved and the engineering involved just to create the machines that create yeah. the parts for the watches um, but also how they work and yeah. how you can actually get you know, these mechanical and automatic winding watches depending on your wrist, you know, wrist movement and all that sort of stuff and and how yeah. intricate yeah. all of the parts are and how they they can literally run for 10, 15 years without being touched. I mean, name any other mechanical yeah. device in the world that can do that. <laughs> that's right. That's you know, made of those that's, such fine tolerance little yeah, things. Yeah, that's made mm. of, you know, components like different grades, steels and, and titanium and rubies um, and all those sorts of very intricate little little yeah. things. And, um, yeah, I just got super fascinated with it. And next thing you know, I've got all this watch cleaning equipment and <laughs> um, all these other different, you know, bits and pieces and I've got books and I'm on YouTube all the time watching these things and uh, no pun intended. And, uh, <laughs> and then... And then next thing you know, I'm buying cheap movements off eBay and either trying to get them working or it doesn't even matter if they're like $30, $40. All I, all I want to do is try and understand them, you know, and take them apart and yeah. and understand what drives what and why. And um, I, I guess comprehension is, is my goal, yeah. um, not just knowledge. Because if, you know, there's one thing knowing that you know, a movement needs this or a movement needs that to make it work. But there's another thing, understanding, understanding. Why, the why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's um, I'm not quite there yet, but I'm on my way. I'm yeah, I'm, lot, I'm starting to I'm starting to pick it up. You're a lot further there than most people. And like well, I, I didn't well, know it's that. a it's a journey that takes many years. Right. So it's, but it is quite um, distracting, I guess you could say, um, when I'm so focused. On a on a watch movement and taking it apart and cleaning it and oiling it and putting it back together, that just like climbing or just like anything else that requires a great deal of focus, the rest of the world sort of disappears yeah. and and you're able to cope with those um, demons. Yeah. Um, in the back of your mind, a lot easier. Yeah. A lot better. There's so many. It's funny, you know, this the, the the whole concept of mindfulness and and uh, what that actually means in that clinical sense is yeah. something that I resisted way back. Thinking, yeah, I know yeah. they want me to meditate in the corner with my legs crossed and then do yeah. yoga and stuff like that. Yeah, and yeah. I, like, and I get that works for some people, but there's I, I so still many I still struggle on. with that side of it. And and yoga for me has been beneficial with my rock climbing. Yeah. Um, Meditation, I struggle with, yeah. unless I'm in the es in the environment of the esketamine right. clinic. Right. But there are so many things out there, like rock climbing or 
like what you do with your podcasting and the interest that you take in all the different bits of equipment and components and and the whys and yeah and all that sort of stuff that that can be not not a substitute well yeah it is actually a, a substitution or a, a type of meditation for you because your mind is so focused yeah. on what's going on, on. on what's going yeah. on and getting yeah. it right and and the particular processes and steps yeah um, that it that it takes yeah. so yeah that that's that's why the watchmaking sort of therapeutic it is yeah, yeah absolutely yeah I didn't know because I remember when you brought up watches at group one day and I'm like are you, are you just about to burst out laughing like this ex-soldier that's into watches I'm going no nah, yeah. he's, he's just about to come out with a clanger and it's like no nah. nah. <laughs> it's it's mostly about my grandfather and yeah and, right but yeah um, it's it's a, it's a it's a deep fascination of what humans are capable of yeah you know we've got a 200 plus year old technology that still exists today that we can't replicate in our cars in our yeah the way we build houses and the way we do do you know what i mean yeah yeah, absolutely sorry not houses i mean the way we build appliances it's the engineering Um, behind it it's like how, how on earth could they do something that intricate that precise so long ago absolutely and it's still valid today in the modern day technology era it's like crazy yeah and and if i could recommend a youtube video that anybody or everybody would watch it's a it's a guy called teddy baldazar on youtube and he does a tour of Jaeger Lacout or Jaeger Lacouture, um, whatever you want to pronounce it. It's, it, it's pronounced Jaeger Lacout. It's a French watch brand. He does a tour of their factory. Right. And it is mind boggling and mind blowing the amount of artistry, engineering, and precision right. that happens to put together these watches. Well, send me the link and I'll put it in the notes because people are listening, you know, if they want to pull it up, they can just click on it. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, yep, I will. Yeah, I'll send yeah. you the link. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. But, um, yeah, it's 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 definitely a, a place that I can go um, and it distracts me or it, it brings me into a state of meditation, I suppose you could say. Um, and before you know it, Two or three hours have passed, mm. you know, and and that feeling of anxiousness or anxiety or whatever yeah. has or dissipated, sort of has thing. kind of dissipated, yeah. you know. Yeah, mate, we've had a fantastic chat. We've been going for yeah. almost two hours. Oh, good, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so uh, it's been a been yeah. a uh, a great. Uh, chat about so many different things. I, I've been listening to a lot of your podcasts, and I know what question you're going to ask me next. <laughs> well. Preempt it. Preempt it. Okay, so you're going to ask me for a song. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now this song. Um, yeah, I've been listening. Yeah, I have. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely, a genuine listener. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm and I'm enjoying them thoroughly. They yeah, are. Thank you. There's a wide range of people in a wide range of professions um, that all have different perspectives. Yeah. Um, but in the end, all want the same thing, and that's. Um, recognition for the service um that first responders do and the and the scenarios that they have to deal with and um that presumptive legislation should it pass through will mean i I know like you've always said it's too late for you now but 
for yeah. the future generations will um, it's gotta be there. will make a huge, huge difference, and yeah. I really hope it happens. Yeah. Because even though I had a long fight with DVA to or Department of Veteran Affairs to to get where I am now, at least we have a system. Mm. Um, and even though it's hard to navigate. I can't imagine having to deal with insurance companies. Oh, man, uh, it's brutal. And yeah. I've seen the days that you've come in yeah. where you have not had a win and you've been yeah. put through um, <laughs> put through the meat grinder. Yeah. Uh, and I remember seeing you come come in some of those days in the group therapy where you could barely speak. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's heartbreaking. Man, that's been it has it has been horrible, and and the yeah. setbacks that are built into the system that's are right. just yeah. so it's so wrong for and, the and individual. and I think one of the main takeaways is that when you've got so much crap going on in your brain and you're doubting your existence, and you know you've got all of these anxiety and and depressive thoughts and. And all that sort of stuff is, is you, you can't, you can barely fill out your own name, let alone yeah. a complex form. And that's, I think, where it, one of the major it's downfalls, a of, is a big yeah. failure is, is that they make it hard to navigate. Yeah. It's so adversarial. It's just, it's, it's a whole it's bizarre. Of it. But yeah, well, thanks for your support, mate. I, um, I know we've all we've had lots of chats about different things, and um, yeah. you know it's yeah. and I, it's something about it too because like there's a lot of um, yeah I I think it's quite meaningful for someone from the military side of the house that has navigated that DVA thing, and that's and even then even then with DVA I needed a um, an advocate yeah to help me navigate the, the, the minefield that is a is yeah. is the system. And and we've got a system in place, whereas you guys are just palmed off to a friggin' insurance company <laughs> with no advocate. <laughs> with, with no advocate, yeah. Um, Work it you, out yourself with a and, lawyer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you're very lucky to have the family that you have, yeah, because I, um, yeah. yeah, that's that's what I've heard time and time again listening to your podcast. But the song, yeah. Getting back to the song now. This isn't a song that's going to help you get through the day when you're walking. This is a campfire. This is a real. Oh, yeah. This we haven't a, had one of these yet. This is actually around the campfire song. And it's by Duran Duran. Yeah. And it's called Ordinary World. Now, if you listen closely to the lyrics and you're suffering from anxiety or depression or some form of PTSD, it is going to really hit home. Yeah, right. Um, I'll listen to it in the car on the way home, mate. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it is, it's definitely not a motivational song. Um, but it's a holy crap, this dude is talking about my life kind of song, right? In a roundabout way, so um, yeah, I definitely recommend that one. Cool, yeah, I'll, I'll, it'll go on the list tomorrow. Too and easy. don't forget to send me that YouTube link, oh, I'll yeah, put that on yep. there. And yep. um, you don't do social media or anything like that, so um, no, I don't. If you want to contact Dan, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. No, I, yeah. I found that the algorithms start steering me in directions that I, want, I don't want to go. So I stay yeah. away from them. Um, yeah. I don't watch the news. Um, I just do me and... <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> and, and my girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, no pun in... Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That, yeah that, that sounded a lot dirtier than, 
than it should have been. Well, you got but, enough, um, you got enough on. You don't need to go. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Social media is a yeah. It's a yeah, yeah. It's a dangerous she, world. She's been amazing. She's she's incredible. Like um, and I've been completely honest about my situation with her, and she's yeah. still. Accepts me for who still I am. There. Yeah, she's still there. So, um, uh, good luck to you. Yeah, that's yeah. been pretty, pretty amazing, mate. Thank you very much for the chat. I've, I really appreciate you. You know, but telling us about your background and your history and and you know your which, life, which of course may not at all be accurate. So, <laughs> well, what your family's told you about your background up yeah. to that point, anyway. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, hey, thanks yeah. again. Thanks very much. Yeah, I've got to get my name tattooed on my forehead, apparently. <laughs> It's not that bad. (laughs) You've been listening to the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. People on their own journey for the awareness of mental health in our first responders. Thanks for listening and please remember to support our foundation by going to the webpage at www.hearttoheartwalk.org. That's www.heart2heartwalk.org or just Google it.